0: No knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes." But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Mission. What comes into your mind when you hear that word, mission? Mission. Perhaps if you're from San Antonio like me, you might think of the five mission buildings, one of which is the Alamo. If you're already contemplating lunch, you may be thinking mission tortillas. If you are thinking of religious terms, you might think of something someone does who's a missionary, they go on their mission. If you're a movie buff, you might be having in your mind the words, your mission, should you choose to accept it, ending with, this message will self-destruct in five seconds. A mission, something that you're sent to do, a task that you are focused on. We're told nowadays that companies, organizations need mission statements, so they're clear on what they're doing in mission creep, where you start focusing on secondary, unnecessary things don't distract you. Well, this morning, Jesus sends his 72, not just 12, disciples out on a mission And this mission still affects us today. Now, this isn't all of the mission Jesus has given us, but it is an essential part of it. And for these 72 disciples to fulfill this mission, they need to know the message and the power. We'll see that in verses 1 through 6. Then in verses 7 through 12, they need to know how do we respond when we're accepted? How do we respond when we're rejected? And then lastly, in verses 13 through 16, they need to realize that greater revelation leads to greater responsibility if you remember from last time at the end of chapter 9 jesus had been rejected in samaria when he had sent people before him and then he told them these strong words of what it meant to follow him and now he's sending out these 72 in pairs jesus has often sent people before him he sent john the baptist who came before and then in chapter 9 verses 1 through 6 he sent out the 12 and now that mission is growing and has continued to grow even after jesus died and rose again. He says in Acts 1.8 to all his disciples there, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The mission of Jesus given to his disciples is to be witnesses from where they are, but then radiating to all the earth. So does everyone in the earth have the opportunity to hear the gospel? Well, sadly, over 2,000 years later almost, it's not even close. If we think of countries, there's about 200 countries in the world, but if you think of people groups, there are about 17,000. Well, what's a people group? Well, a people group is someone that has a shared history, a shared culture, and a same shared language. So even in the United States, we have you know, maybe a middle-class people group, but then if you go to reservations, those are almost like a whole different people group. Or if you go to a country like India, There's many different languages. So yeah, you can talk about India as one country, but within that country, there might be Christians in one village who don't even speak the language of the people next to them. So the next village might be an unreached people group. Well, in the world, there are estimated to be about 17,000 people groups. And of those, it's estimated that 7,000 are unreached. What unreached means is that only 5% of the population or less claims to be a Christian, And then the people who do this realize that not everyone who claims to be a Christian is actually following that. So only 2% or less in this people group are actually following Christ. And if you look at the world, there's really this big rectangular space where this occurs. Those who do this call it the 1040 window. If you can remember back to some junior high and high school geography, there's latitude and longitude lines. Longitude are going vertically. Latitude go horizontally if you go south of the equator to the 10 degree latitude and then go down to the 40 degree latitude so 30 degrees in there from africa to the east of asia so hopefully you remember a little geography that 10 40 window is where 95% of these unreached peoples are and of those unreached people some are completely unengaged 3000 people groups have no christians in their midst No church. There is no way unless they decided, I want to go around and talk to other people. There's no way today they could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the task that Jesus gave his disciples is far from complete. But they need to know the power for this mission. And we see that in verse 2. Notice Jesus doesn't start by giving them this grand scheme. He doesn't give them a strategy. He doesn't give them a philosophy of ministry per se. What does he tell them to do? He calls them to pray. Well, why do they need to pray? Well, because there's a world. And in this world, there's not enough workers to go out to bring in the harvest. The first thing they have to realize is that they're powerless to do the mission that's given to them. So he beseeches them to beseech the Lord of the harvest, to send more workers. You know, as people respond to Jesus... That is not the end goal that they just trust in Christ. They are then to grow into maturity so that they can also be people who are being ambassadors for Christ. Calling others to know Him and able to lead them in maturity. Discipleship is the goal, not just professions. And yet in some great mystery, God has chosen that the way His mission is going to be accomplished is through our prayers. He doesn't need us. He definitely doesn't need our prayers, but... In some way, he has aligned the nations and people coming to trust him to happen through our prayers and our efforts. Why would he do that? I don't really know. But he has. And so we must pray. You know, here we should still, what does he say? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. You know, Operation World is one of the groups that really has focused on studying the nations of the world. And they're a great organization if you want to grow in praying for unreached people groups. And on their website they write. May we become intercessors with a world vision. That prays for Satan defeating. Kingdom taken, taking. People reaching. Captive releasing. Revival giving. Christ glorifying prayers. And I hope that's the heart of all of us. That we want all of those things to happen. And so we earnestly. Not just as we roll over. And are about to go to sleep. But Earnestly pray that the lord would send workers into the harvest now that's not all he says because it's not just praying god will do his work he gives them instructions but we can't begin until we've begun to pray along with letting them know that they utterly dependent on god jesus also warns them in verse 3 of the danger that this mission poses them notice what he says he says in verse 3 i am sending you out as lambs in the midst of of wolves that's a type of thing shepherds normally don't do shepherds are normally trying to keep the sheep away from the wolf and yet jesus sends the lambs into the wolves and yet we can have confidence because he is the great shepherd he'll protect his sheep so we don't need to be afraid of the big bad wolf because the shepherd is greater than any wolf in this world So then Jesus continues, and he's going to give them instructions on actually what not to take. When I was in junior high, one of the men in our church led a backpacking trip. We went to New Mexico, and for three days, everything we ate, drank, and slept on was in our pack. And so we didn't just one day hop in the car and drive there. He first met with us and said, okay, this is what you need to bring. You don't need to bring this. Remember, everything you're carrying is going to be on your back every single step. So you only want the essentials. Talked about what shoes to wear, what kind of pack to get, how to load your pack. Because when you went on this backpacking trip, you only wanted the essentials. Well, Jesus here gives his disciples the essentials for their mission. And those essentials don't include a money bag, a knapsack, which is something to carry their possessions, or extra sandals. Now, really, if you look at chapter 9, 1 through 6, this is similar statements. And what it's getting them to do is realize... We have to fully depend upon God. In this mission, we're not going to be able to do it on our own. I don't have extra resources. All that I do has to be supplied by God. And even as they go, they're not supposed to get bogged down with idle conversations along the road. See there in verse 4. Then in verses 5 through 9, He tells them what to do and respond to how people receive them. You know, when they go to a house... They're supposed to speak to peace, to the household, those who are in it. In other words, their message is a message of peace. You know, they're not walking into towns with placards saying destruction is coming, wearing long beards and looking dark. Now, though we'll see that judgment is part of the message, that's not the core of it. The core is peace. God is sending peace, messages of peace, if people will respond. Now, we shouldn't pass over this too quickly. Notice the message is not, okay, you go out and tell them they better start going to synagogue. You better go tell them that they need to start becoming more religious. First, God offers peace. And then, yes, later will come ways they need to change. But the message is first the way that God has made a way for them to be reconciled and be at peace with Him. And so in this first section, we see that Jesus' messengers are powerless proclaimers. And yet this is nothing new. God has always called his people to task that we're unable to do. He called Moses to go deliver Israel out of Egyptian slavery. And what did Moses do? He looked over his shoulder and said, who, me? What army? How how am I going to do this? I can't do that. I can't speak. I don't have the ability to do this. And God said, my power will work through you. Or the Israelite army, as they look across the valley and they see the giant Goliath, they all realize, we don't have the power to beat that guy. We can't do it. We're powerless compared to that. And yet God's mission has always been for us to realize it's not about us. It's not about our strategies, our cleverness, our wit. It's about God's power. Psalm sixty-two eleven says, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to to God earlier we had sec- we read second corinthians 12 and verse 9 says but god said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore i will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of christ may rest upon me and you know, to fully carry out jesus mission to faithfully do it the first thing we have to realize is we aren't able to do it We're utterly weak. We need His strength to do what He calls us to do. And so, to boldly go around proclaiming, I'm strong, I'm able to do this, I got this, is actually to rob us of the very strength that we are given. To be strong, we have to say, we can't do this. I don't have the abilities. This is something beyond my control. Now, probably nothing reveals our sense of strength by how much we pray. And this is an indictment on myself. You know, when I have something important to do, do I spend more time planning and maybe throw in a token prayer at the beginning? Oh, yeah, I got to pray. Yes, God, I know. I know. Acknowledge. I need you. Or do I say I really need to come to the Lord in prayer? This is urgent. Yes, I need to plan. Yes, I need to do things, but I need to pray. I need to focus on him and what he can do because I can't (sighs) do it myself. Well, Jesus now turns to explain to them, well, how do we respond? Because we're going to go to all these towns. Some people, they're going to accept us. they like, oh, this is great. Others are going to reject us. And we see that in verses 7 through 12. In verse 7, it says, whatever house receives them, they're to stay there. In other words, don't feel guilty that they're giving you stuff. Don't go and get more fancy stuff. Because look, you're worthy of your wages. Now, this is language used throughout the New Testament, that those who work... Doing spiritual work should be supported by monetary and physical means. And in some cultures, that means providing a chicken, or giving some of the harvest, or giving some of the cloth you made. In other cultures, it's providing monetarily. But whatever the way it's done, Christ has set up that his workers would be supported for it. Along with this, Jesus says they're to eat whatever is put before them. You know, In many a culture, even in the U.S., if someone gives you a meal, you like, I don't really want to eat that. They're insulted. And then they don't want to hear what you have to say. You know, John Hogg was a missionary in the late 1800s in the Middle East. And he went to this one house, and the people there were trying to cause trouble. And so they said, Dr. Hogg, do you seek to obey everything that's written in the Gospels? He said, well, I do. And when he answered that, they said, well, very well. The Gospels say that the evangelist is to eat everything that's set before him. Do you accept that? Yes, came the reply. And when then, they placed in front of him a nice dried pile of cow manure. Dr. Hogg looked down and thought for a second, and realized this was their cooking fuel, and said, Well, that is the food for fire. If you give me food for people, I will eat it. And though we're often not having cow manure set before us, maybe we have something that is not something we want. Now, we often think about this in those foreign missionaries who go off maybe to Asia and are given dog. Well, oh, how could you eat dog? Or they go and give something else. But let's apply this here. What if there's someone who you're getting to know and you're a foodie and you love food and you go and they are so excited to give you their Spam burger with American cheese on top? Can you joyfully, without grunting or going, oh, I'm not that hungry, eat it and say thank you. If they say, hey, let's go to McDonald's, can you say, yeah, I'll go there, maybe though you wouldn't want to? Well, let's flip it, maybe you're a McDonald's Spamburger lover. If you go to their house and they offer you caviar or even a glass of wine, can you cheerfully, thank you, this this was nice, I appreciate that. You know, the message is not just for those people out there, we too need to consider How can I reach out to those around me and seek to avoid any hindrance to the gospel? Well, the disciples as they go, they also should be healing the sick, we're told in verse 9. You know, These healings, they're visible evidences that God's kingdom has come, because that's what they're letting them know. God's kingdom is near. They're not just saying, hey, God's kingdom's here. You should believe me. Well, why should I believe you? Just believe. You don't really need any evidence. No, that healings would show look when god comes sin will be done away with and so sickness will be no more and as they see people healed it will be evidence of this kingdom having come you know, jesus mission includes caring for the body and the soul you know, for various reasons christians often have a hard time keeping these two together we either get solely focused on We should evangelize. We should care about people's soul. We don't need to worry about their body. Or they say, no, 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 no. We need to live out the gospel. We need to do social actions, care about them, and then they'll want to hear. But we don't really need to worry about sharing the gospel. We'll get to that. And yet it's always both. Jesus calls us to love people. And every person is made up of body and soul. So to love them, we need to care about them physically. But to love them, we also need to realize if we heal everything physically, and that's all we do, we've let them have the most dangerous situation they can, because their soul is in danger. So after giving these instructions on how they should respond to people who receive them, Jesus also, in verses 10-12, through 12 tells them how to respond if they are rejected. Verses 10-11, through 11, He says, look, if they reject you, you basically go out in the town square, you hit the dust off your feet, and you say... This city, the dust of this city clings to our feet. We wipe off. Nevertheless, know the kingdom of God has come near. This is a public rebuke. In their day, as a Jew would leave Israel, they would walk into Gentile land or foreign land, and they considered it unclean. And when they got back to the border of Israel, they would take off their sandals and knock all the dust off because they wanted none of that contaminated Gentile dirt even to enter their territory. It would put them under God's judgment. So in a symbolic way, Jesus is using what they do to say, look, it's not just those people out there, even people in Israel, if they do not accept the message, God is knocking the dust off. He's warning them that judgment is going to come. And then he says something that would make all of them be shocked. He says the judgment will be more bearable for Sodom on that day than these cities. Sodom represented the most wicked city in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus is saying even an Israelite Jewish town will be judged worse if they don't heed this message. And so Jesus here is warning his disciples beforehand that some of them will reject them. And though this is sadly true, in some ways it's a liberating truth. Because as we noted at the beginning, it's not dependent on us how people respond, you know, Jesus lets us know that we will talk to people and they 'll go i don 't agree with that i don 't believe that you know our job is not to get them to believe our mess our mission is not for them to convert that 's god 's job. We proclaim the message of God and leave up to God who will have faith and that 's why we must pray, you know knowing this keeps us from all kinds of manipulative methods and trying to get people to come to christ you know, we don't try and emotionally manipulate them or set up this environment where we can get everything right and, well if we can just get this right new then they'll trust well no god will work on the other hand knowing that god must give faith should never make us complacent it should never make us go well you know we've done what we can oh well you know, charles spurgeon who clearly believed that god must work also writes these words he wrote To have no conversions is a very dreadful thing. But to be at ease with seeing no conversions is at all times more dreadful. I could bear suspension in the increase of the church, I think, with some degree of peace of mind if I found all the members distressed and disturbed about it. As long as a church is satisfied to be barren, she shall be barren. But when she crieth out in the anguish of her spirit, then shall Jehovah remember her. He heareth the cries of his people. But when she will not cry, what is at ease in desolate circumstances? Then the desolation shall continue and the sorrows be multiplied. Are we desperate to see people come to faith in Christ? Or do we kind of write off, well, we've done our part. Who cares? If God doesn't want to save people now, it's all right. No, we should be longing that we would see people come to faith and be praying that he would do that. Now passages, like we've seen here, are sometimes a little bit abused. People go, look, this is the mission that he's given and we should do it. So look, right here, they're supposed to heal people. This week I went to one prominent TV evangelist website and on the very front page, the main link, it says, don't tolerate sickness and disease any longer. Another link said the time of healing is now. If God's kingdom is here, if we see in the new testament healing shouldn't we be expecting that now shouldn't we wonder if people in our midst are sick well no that's not actually true i've shared this before but on our honeymoon sarah and i were on a flight and next to us was put a woman who had to come onto the plane last because she was brought in in a wheelchair and then once the flight ended we had to go last because she had to be taken off. But almost the whole flight, she was telling us how this famous evangelist had healed her three times. Now, a couple clues let me know that this was not the healing of Jesus. One, she was still unable to walk. Two, she had to be healed three times. When Jesus and his disciples healed, it was instantaneous. It was a clear healing. It wasn't some vague hurt, or pain. It was clear. The blind now see. The leprous skin is now pure in the way it should be. And though we should long, and though Jesus still does answer prayers, and though people are still healed in miraculous ways, we need to realize the difference of when the gospel is going forth in the New Testament and what's going to happen afterwards. Even the Apostle Paul, what does he tell Timothy with his sick stomach? He doesn't say, well... Timothy, I knew you were really lacking in faith. Timothy, you need to go pray. No, he says, drink some wine. Because it was not the expectation that healing would be the norm for the rest of the time of God's church here on earth. And so again, should we pray for healing? Yes. When someone's sick, should we lay hands on them and ask that God would cause the disease to go away? Yes. But we need to realize that we do not still have that same power And we should not necessarily expect that that will happen. Sadly, when that does get proclaimed, what often happens is people become disillusioned because they're told everything's going to be made better. Everyone's going to be healthy. And yet, because God hasn't promised that, when it doesn't happen, people go, well, I guess God isn't true. We need to be faithful to the message and not continue to proclaim things as happening now when they have not fully come. And we know they haven't fully come, because what does Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come. It has not yet fully been brought to this earth. So for now, not everyone is going to be healed. Not for now, not everyone is going to believe in God's kingdom. Yes, everyone will be healed. Everyone will believe in His kingdom. However, we have to realize all those things are not now. As well, we need to realize in verses 13 through 16, that if we have more revelation given to us, then we're going to have a greater responsibility for how we respond to it. In verse 13, he says, "Woe to you, Corzin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the mighty works done in you had been done entire in Sidon. They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes." You know, when we think of woe, you might think of pulling back on the reins of a horse. It's not always talking about woe is a declaration of judgment that is coming. If they need to heed these warnings, or there is no hope. Now, Chorazin and Bethsaida are both cities. If you can think of the Israelite map, or flip to one on the back, there's the Sea of Galilee in the north, the Jordan River running down, and then above the Sea of Galilee in the northern part is where Chorazin and Bethsaida are. Now, we don't really know anything else about Chorazin. It's the only reference to it. But Bethsaida, we know from the last chapter, is where more than 5,000 people were fed. They had physically tasted that God's kingdom had come. And yet they don't believe. They don't respond appropriately. And so Jesus says, if Tyre and Sidon, two cities that in the Old Testament were referred to as cities of judgment, if they had seen those signs, they would have believed. One man writes, the current generation is less responsive than these notoriously wicked generations of past ages. You know, though Tyre and Sidon were wicked, at least if they'd seen 5,000 people fed, tasted the food, and seen 12 baskets left over, they would have responded. They would have repented in dust and ashes. They would have put on sackcloth. These are garments of sorrow. And putting this, these on would have shown the deep anguish they have over their sins. Now, it's interesting. Jesus here commands what many today... Would see as being emotionally and spiritually unhealthy. Well, you shouldn't go around having sorrow. You shouldn't be saying what we did is bad. You know, disliking yourself, that's negative self talk. What you need is to praise yourself. Yeah, we all have faults, but you need to encourage yourself. Speak positive affirmations over your life. Yet, throughout Scripture, we see this need for honest self evaluation. If you read through the book of Job, Job questions God. And at the end, God questions Job. And Job responds, Job forty-two six. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, this sorrow here is not merely to be beating ourselves up. It's not a pity party. It's not penance where I go around going, Well, I was really bad, so I need to make myself feel really bad for a long time because I deserve it. That's not what he's talking about. It's an evaluation of who God is and how far I have fallen short and the despair that realizes I have no hope if it wasn't for the work of Christ. We were talking about this yesterday in our men's study and I used the analogy it should be like a trampoline. As we go down, it's only to launch us up to see what Christ has done for us. It's not just to go around flogging ourselves in despair, but we should at times realize, wow, My sin cost the eternal Son of God His life. That should cause sorrow to me. It could cause me to repent. And yet these cities, they don't listen. They've heard, they've seen that the kingdom of God has come, and yet only God can create faith. And I think it's helpful to realize that these wonderful signs don't always create faith. R.C. Sproul shared of a man named Harold. One day, Harold woke up, but he wouldn't get out of bed. His wife finally went in about 10 o'clock said, Harold, I need to get up. Well, honey, I'd love to, but I can't get up. Well, Harold, why can't you get up? Come on, get up. It's 10 o'clock. We got to get going. Well, sorry, honey, I'm dead. Okay, Harold, that's funny. Get up. Let's, let's get going. Sorry, honey, I, I'm dead. I can't get up. Well, his wife didn't know what to do because he kept insisting that he was dead. So finally, their doctor would still make house visits. So she called the doctor and said, Look, Harold, if I call the doctor and the doctor says you're alive, will you get out of bed? Sure. I'll believe the doctor. So the doctor comes. He brings in his bag. He starts running tests. And he says, Harold, I got bad news. You're alive. No. Sorry, doctor. I'm sorry you believe that, but I'm not alive. So the doctor thought for a minute... And he said, okay, Harold, do dead people bleed? Harold thought, and he goes, no, you're right. Dead people don't bleed. So he goes, okay, Harold, let me see your finger. He got out of the device and pricked it to draw blood and see. Look, Harold, blood. And Harold goes, I can't believe it. Dead people do bleed. You know, the point is, we can have all of the evidence presented to us. But if we don't want to believe, we will choose to interpret the facts however we want. These cities had had all this evidence, and people all the time would say, well, if God would just appear to me, well, if this would just happen, then I would believe. And yet it's not true. Our problem is not just in our minds. Our problem is with our will. We don't want to believe. And so we will choose to reinterpret, to reject, and that's why we have to pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers and then cause the harvest to come forth. You know, our sin and the devil blind us to reality. And we need the light of God to shine so that the truth is seen. And thus, verse 14, we see that when people have this greater revelation, they're going to have more judgment. If they have less revelation, they'll have less judgment. You know, it's not only that with great power comes great responsibility, but also with great revelation comes greater responsibility. You know, seeing, hearing, and knowing more about God is freeing because we can serve Him more as we know more about Him. And yet, it also calls for a greater measure of response to Him. You, even this morning, all of us who hear this message, even me as I prepared, have now a greater degree of responsibility to God than we would have before. You know, think of all the privileges we have. You know, those cities... Inside, and they existed before Jesus came on earth. They existed before his death and resurrection. They existed before they could have a personal Bible or maybe 20 and as many as we want on our phones in their lives. They existed when they had to work from sunup to sundown just to make it through the next year. They didn't go on vacations. They didn't have extra resources. They didn't have commentaries. They didn't have Bible conferences. We have a much greater responsibility. How are we using all these privileges that we have? Wealth. You can go right now, and from the time you leave to the time you go to sleep, listen to some of the best sermons that have been preached in the last hundred years. The The responsibility is greater. How are we responding? Are we using our resources, our time, to live on mission as Jesus is calling us to? Well, Jesus then singles out one other city, verse 13. He says, You, Capernaum. So I guess they thought really high of themselves. Oh, you think you're going to go to heaven? You're an Israelite city, you're so great. Well, no, you're going to go to Hades. You in Capernaum, Jesus had cast out a demon in the synagogue. In Capernaum is where he had healed the centurion's servant. Public acts that everyone would know about. And yet, they have not responded appropriately. But then Jesus says, look, if they're, how they respond to you is ultimately how they're responding to me. And so we need to realize that, that you may think, no one ever listens to me. What I say doesn't matter. But if we're faithfully speaking for God, them rejecting us is not actually rejecting us. It's rejecting God to who they'll have to give account. Now, these verses actually contradict a really commonly stated belief by many Christians today. And that belief is that, well, all sins are equal. I hear this from time to time. You know, when God looks at sin, all sins are basically the same. Now, I think people say that for several good reasons. One, James 2.10 says one sin is making us liable of all. And any sin, doesn't matter the least to the greatest, eternally separates us from God. Well, that's true. Yet, James' point is not that each sin merits the same level of punishment. It's that each sin causes us to be under god's condemnation as well i think people are trying to avoid the error with well there's these mortal sins and if you commit one of these seven mortal sins and you don't confess it before you die no good well no every single sin past present and future if you trust in christ has been forgiven there's no list of mortal no list of venial that's not true as well i think it might come from the attitude of look we shouldn't be pharisaical and Look at those people's sins over there, and then kind of make no big deal about our pet sins. Now, while all those things are true, it's not true to say that all sin is equal. You know, here in this passage, Jesus is saying there's going to be greater and lesser punishment. Well, that wouldn't be the case if all sin was judged the same. Or even when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, he challenges Jesus for not answering him. And Jesus replies, John 19:11. he says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, what you're doing in condemning the Son of God to death, that's sin. But what Judas did in betraying me, that was a greater sin. Not all sins are of equal value. I realize why people are saying this, but let's just think. Let's just say someone is flirting with someone else's spouse. That's a sexual sin, and that's wrong. But does God really view that sexual sin the same as rape? Well, no. If you read the Old Testament, there's various levels of condemnation. So yes, we should affirm that every single sin makes us worthy of God's judgment. But we need to avoid acting and thinking as though, well. God treats all sin the same. You stole a candy bar. He murdered someone. It's all a wash to God. Not at all. God says for some sins we will have a greater punishment. But I don't know if you notice, this passage really reveals an amazing thing about God. It reveals that God has knowledge of all the permutations, combinations, and speculations of what would have happened if. You know, this week we celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Well, we might ask, what would have happened if that mission wasn't accomplished? Would French people be eating sauerkraut and being under Nazi control? Well, we don't know, but God says if you could go back and change, and Tyre and Sidon had experienced this, they would have repented. He knows all of the would have happened, could have happened, if this one thing changed. God's knowledge covers everything. You may ask those questions on your own life. You know, what would have happened if instead of moving to Wichita Falls, we'd move to San Antonio, Well, God knows. He knows how the rest of your life would have played out. God knows every permutation of what your life could have, should have been. God knows all. And the amazing thing is, God knows all. He knows all of your sin. And yet he still says, you can have my peace. Not because he's unaware of our rebellion. Not because he's unaware. God knows all. And he still says, you can have peace through my son not by becoming religious, not by doing good deeds. You can have peace with God because He sent His only Son to come and die and rise again, conquering sin and death. But not only does He restore us, not only does He give us peace, He then sends us out to be on mission. You know, no Christian is exempt from this mission. And we may play different roles. As far as I'm aware, most of us here, function more in the role of sender we're not going to some unreached people group but we've sent people out we support them with our money we support them with our prayers are you part of that mission do you even know our missionaries you are you eagerly giving regularly sacrificially for the cause of missions around the world you know if someone looked at your finances and they said this is what matters would they look at how much you give to missions and go "Huh, that's really important to them or would they go well they could have gone and gotten coffee but they got gave that five dollars to missions instead well that's good give every five dollars you can but our lifestyle our money our time our prayers should reflect missions we want all to come in that they might know the peace of christ now, sadly, the reality is the majority of Christians are completely, at least professing Christians, unengaged from this mission of God. They were converted, maybe they go to church, they regulate 10, but if you ask them, who are you praying for? Who are you supporting? How are you trying to help? Uh, we should all be eagerly being senders, or goers you know in faithfulness to christ and love for people we can't sit back and do nothing now we're not just sinners though we're also goers we may not be going around the world but we can go across the street we may go across the hallway we may go across the office we may go to family reunions and so we're sinners but we're also goers And maybe God is calling even some of you to be goers to one of these unreached people groups. That you would be the one to go so that there might be opportunities to respond to the gospel. Again, in faithfulness to Christ and love for people, we can't sit back and do nothing. Jesus is clear. He didn't say, well, Tyre and Sidon, they're not going to receive judgment. No, everyone who doesn't turn to Christ will receive judgment. And so we want them to hear the good news of peace offered from God. yet also he gave this warning that for those of us who've heard more, there's a greater judgment. And maybe this morning you aren't thinking about world missions. You're not thinking about going across the street. You're wondering, am I at peace with God? Well, then that's the call that God has for you today. Realize that he has made a way for you to be at peace with him. Not by giving your money to missions. Not by getting all of this religious activity done, but by just trusting, by repenting, by realizing you have fallen short and yet He has come down and made a way. And so may we be faithful to respond to that call. May we be faithful to respond, not just to the call of the gospel, but the call of the gospel that sends us out. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would we have a heart for You, A heart that wants to see your name honored by more and more people proclaiming who you are. Lord, would we be zealous for your name to be proclaimed to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lord, stir us from our laziness and our lethargy. Would we have more of a love for that than all of the things that cling so tightly to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.